Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this edition, we again visit with Dr. Terry Allen Coopers, a forensic psychiatrist and the author of Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. In our first visit, available online at radiocurious.org, Dr. Coopers describes the abysmal conditions in which an estimated 100,000 incarcerated people, both men and women, are held in solitary confinement in the United States. Kept in dark, cold, and often wet cells, more or less 8 feet by 10 feet in size, many have little or no human contact, sometimes for years on end. Many suffer from mental illness prior to or as a result of living in solitary confinement. This results in significant long-term damage to these people as individuals and our society as a whole. In the second of our two-part series, Dr. Cooper shares stories of prisoners held in solitary confinement and what he believes is necessary to achieve meaningful rehabilitation to people who have committed crimes and have been sentenced to prison. When Dr. Terry Coopers and I visited by phone from his home in Oakland, California on February 14, 2018, we began this second visit when I asked him to describe what he calls a rehabilitative attitude. Well, we were developing a strong rehabilitation program in the prisons through the 1970s, and this involved educational pursuits. Most people who go to prison have never finished high school. And there were college classes. There were, Penn was uh, financing college classes in prison. There was vocational training. There were meaningful shops where prisoners learned metalworking, cabinet making, and so forth. And in the 1980s, because of a lot of crowding, prisons became out of control. There was a lot of violence. There were riots that made the newspapers. And there was a campaign by conservative politicians to stop coddling the prisoners. So two things happened. One is that the rehabilitation programs were slashed. The funding was just cut off for them. And the second is that they turned to constant 24-hour lockup, and that's the advent of the supermax prison. This was in the 1980s, and I call this a historic wrong turn. What we need to do is go back and uncrowd the prisons, that is, reduce the prison population, for instance, to stop putting low-level drug offenders in prison. Straight away, we should do that. What they need is some kind of substance abuse treatment out in the community, and they would do much better than going to prison. At what level is a low-level drug offender? Well, what I mean is that people who use drugs and they do petty crimes in order to support their habit, they have a drug problem, and it's a problem that needs treatment. If they go to prison and, or jail, what the studies show is that their rate of substance abuse stays about the same. That is, they go into prison with a substance abuse problem, they come out of prison with a substance abuse problem. If they go to a treatment program in the community, about 60 to 80 percent of them will be clean and sober after three years. So it makes no sense, for instance, to violate people's parole and send them back to prison because they had a dirty urine 
Rather, they should be mandated to take part in a substance abuse treatment program in the community. So that's what I mean by low-level offenders. Of course, if there's a violent crime, it needs to be another strategy, and I have ideas about that, but that's not what I'm talking about with low-level drug offenders. Well, let's talk about a strategy for violent crime because that has to do with the behavior of a person put in prison that might get them sent to the supermax. That's correct. Now, solitary confinement in prison is not supposed to be uh, triggered by one's crime of conviction. That is, supermax is a punishment inside prison. The prison sentence is the punishment for the crime of conviction. And theoretically, and according to all standards, prisoners are sent to solitary confinement because of actions they've taken, or in many states, gang affiliations, inside prison. And it's not a sentence by a court. The violent crime should not be why someone is in supermax. Unfortunately, a lot of states violate this basic principle. But it should be about behaviors inside prison. So people who have committed violent crimes can be in general population in a maximum security prison. Let's talk about the rehabilitative attitude that you discuss in your book, Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. Well, I spoke in the last segment about the culture of punishment, where the entire relationship between officers and prisoners becomes rule violations. There are just lots and lots of rules, much more than in the free world. And if a prisoner violates a rule, it's the officer's job to write them a disciplinary infraction and punish them. And basically, the relationship gets reduced to that. So it's all negative. It's all about punishments and then brutal takedowns called cell extractions follow. What I'm proposing is that we re-examine the relationship between officers and prisoners. For instance, there was a supermax solitary confinement unit in the state of Washington that had an extraordinary number of cell extractions, but they would have 60 or 80 cell extractions a week. It was only a few hundred cells in the supermax. These are very violent events where five or six officers dressed in riot gear first spray the prisoner with a mobilizing gas and then crash into a cell and take him down, which usually means slamming him against a wall and each officer grabs one limb. This is too many. And the central uh, office in the Department of Corrections in Washington said something's going wrong at that prison. They changed the superintendent. They sent a new superintendent there. The new superintendent went around the first day on the job and met all officers individually and said, look, I want you to make me a promise. I want you to call the prisoners by their last name. I want you to call them Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith. And I want you not to use insults and swearing when you interact with them. Would you promise me to do that? And the, all the officers said, sure. And he said, and I'll bet you that things get better here. Then he went to every single prisoner. Here's the warden, the new superintendent, going to every single prisoner and saying the same thing. I want you to call the officers by their name. Do not swear at them and act respectfully, and I promise you things will improve. And the prisoners said, okay, I agree. I mean, here they were being shown the respect that the warden was coming to see them personally. And in fact, 
the rate of cell extractions went down to practically zero in that prison. It was almost a magical occurrence, a turnaround. Well, there is an idea about the rehabilitative attitude. People who go to prison are very concerned about respect. They feel they've been disrespected at every turn. For instance, African-Americans feel disrespected by the police who patrol them closely and regularly frisk them on the street and say nasty things to them. There's a lot of racism, and practically 50% of prisoners are African-Americans. If, instead of being disrespected anew in the prison, the staff talked to the prisoners with respect and also had other things to talk about other than rules and rule violations, then the prisoners would be motivated to behave a lot better. And what they would start to do is be concerned about their future after they get out of prison, rather than how they're going to get back at an officer who just cussed them out or, or did some terrible punishment. I'd like to discuss that further with you, but let's backtrack for a minute and stay with cell extractions. You describe that what they do, they being the guards, take the prisoner down. What does that mean, and what happens to the prisoner? Is the prisoner taken, extracted from the cell, and where do they go? Yes, that is what the word means, cell extraction. They take the prisoner out of the cell. The prisoner is in an isolation cell. He or she cannot cause trouble, really, because he or she is locked in a cell by themselves, usually. However, what will happen is an argument will arise over a minimum order that the officers give. For instance, the prisoner on the inside of the cell might be thinking, they are serving me rotten food. I found bugs in the food, or it was cold, or it tasted nasty. I think they're poisoning it. I want to talk to somebody in the cafeteria service about the terrible food, and therefore I'm not going to return my food tray. The officers say, okay, that's enough. We're going to do a cell extraction. They stop talking, and what they do is assemble their extraction team. Then the prisoner, meanwhile, is uh, getting his back to the wall and saying, okay, if that's the way you want to treat me, come on in. Try to take me down. So a takedown is something that happens in a state mental hospital. That is, the staff surrounds someone who's out of control. They each grab a limb and they uh, bring him to the floor, hopefully as peacefully as possible. But in a prison where everything is sort of escalated, the officers dress up, they have padding on their legs, their arms, their chest, they wear a football helmet, and they have a gas mask on. They first spray the prisoner in his cell, spray pepper gas, and then they open the door and rush in, and each officer grabs one arm or leg, and someone is carrying a shield and uses a shield to shove the prisoner against the far wall. That's called a cell extraction, and then they're going to put handcuffs on the prisoner and take him out of the cell. And then what do they do with him? Well, there are rules that they have to detoxify him. They have to take him to the nurse. This is the policy in most states, and there are national standards on this. Take him to the nurse who will examine him to see if there's been damage either from the pepper spray or from the physical uh, abuse. And then once he is cleared by the nurse, they will put him back in a solitary confinement cell, often the same cell, which should have been decontaminated because it's got pepper spray in it. But often they'll throw him back in the same cell, and therefore he'll have pepper spray in his cell. 
and then they write him a ticket, a disciplinary infraction, and usually he'll be punished with more time in solitary confinement. So basically, do I hear correctly that there's a prisoner who would like to have something done, he's in isolation, unable to get out, and refuses, in the example that you gave, to return the food tray, and the guards unilaterally, without any consultation, go in and beat up the prisoner, put mace or some other gas in the cell first, take him out, have him checked by a nurse, and bring him back to the same place, all within maybe an hour, two hours? That is absolutely correct. And then he is assigned more time, punished with more time in solitary. That brings up a subject about the rehabilitative attitude. If instead of doing a cell extraction immediately, there was a procedure where the warden, for instance, or the shift commander would come and talk to the recalcitrant prisoner and just show up and say, what's going on here? My officers tell me that they're going to have to do a cell extraction. Is that what you want? Usually, I would say in a large majority of cases, the prisoner, having been shown the respect that the warden, the chief person, is coming to talk to them, will tell the warden, look, the food is rotten. And the warden will say, I will look into that. Would you please do what the officers are asking? Almost all cases, the prisoner will then do it because he's been shown some respect. Our guest in this edition of Radio Curious is Dr. Terry Allen Coopers, a forensic psychiatrist based in Oakland, California. He's the author of Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Terry, would you share with us the story of a disruptive prisoner and how that began to morph the policy of solitary confinement? This is one of the main points of my book. I've been all around the country doing class action lawsuits in various states, and in my investigations to testify in the lawsuits, I've toured the facilities, and I've seen the best programs that are most effective. For instance, the Supermax unit I described in Washington, I visited there, and I saw that a prisoner in that setting knows that if they have a really valid complaint about what's going on, the superintendent will come and visit them and they can talk about it. That prisoner is not likely to make trouble. So what needs to happen as an alternative is that punishments need to be something other than isolation. For instance, you can take away privileges or you can uh, take away points or various lesser punishments. And when prisoners are dangerous when mixed with each other, for instance, prisoners of rival gangs, they need to be separated. But in each place of separation, there need to be all of the programs they would ordinarily have. One of the main things that needs to happen is intensive mental health treatment. Selectively, people with serious mental illness go to solitary confinement, and then in solitary confinement, they're usually the most likely to be the subject of a cell extraction. So there needs to be a setting within the correctional system where people who have mental illness can be treated intensively, and meanwhile, the security is very high. These are typically called residential treatment facilities inside the prison or intermediate care units. We did that in Mississippi as uh, the outcome of a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit, 
and a large portion of the prisoners in the Supermax, Unit 32 at the Mississippi State Penitentiary, were suffering from serious mental illness. And what was established was an intermediate treatment program where they would receive the intensity of treatment that their condition required. There was an incident that you review in your book that talked about a therapist meeting on a regular basis with a very angry man. Can you share that story with us? The event occurred in a prison in New Zealand, and the therapist was visiting the United States doing trainings, which I went to, and I spoke with her about it. It was a training about therapy in general, but I told her I do work in prison, and she told me, well, she works in prison too. This woman was a Pacific Islander, and the prisoner in question was a Pacific Islander, and this occurred in a New Zealand prison. The prisoner was on the back unit of a solitary confinement cell block. That is, the prisoners in the cell block, when they misbehave, they're put further back in sort of a darker and more isolated place. And staff had stopped visiting this man except for to deliver food because he was so angry and he would constantly scream at them and call them names. She said, I want to talk to that man. And the officer said, well, it's at your own risk. He throws things out of the cell and, you know, he's just a terrible person. She said, that's okay. I want to go talk to him. This is a large woman and very motherlike. She's just very warm and nurturing. She says, now, why do you want to behave like that? And the man stopped being angry, settled down and talked to her. And he told her that they treat him with disrespect. They're always punishing him. They beat him up a lot. And she said, well, look, you need to get out of here. I think I can help you get out of here. Will you work with me? And he said, yes. She came back to see him each day, and she said, look, the officers are going to need you to be peaceful if they're going to let you out of their cell. Can you do that? And he said, yes, if they'll leave me alone. And she said, okay. And she talked to the officers, and she said, I want him to walk up and down the hall between the cells. They said, he can't do that. He's dangerous. He'll, he'll throw a, some kind of a spear through one of the cell doors or something. She said, no, he won't. Give it a try. And they did. So he walked up and down the hall and did not get into any trouble. And she said to the officers, see, you can let him out of his cell. She said, I want him to go to the day room. And they said, well, that would be dangerous. She said, give me a chance here. And she went and talked to him and said, the officers are going to let you go to the day room. You have to behave yourself. Can you do it? And he said, yes. So this process kept going. And then she said, he needs to be in the day room with another prisoner. So she negotiated with the officers to let him be with another prisoner who he would pick, someone he got along with. They went to the day room together and played checkers, and he did fine. And gradually, she worked him out of the solitary confinement unit. Now, he's one of the most recalcitrant, angry, and disruptive prisoners I've ever heard of. So if it works with him, something in that kind can work with all of the prisoners in solitary. Generally, when I visit a solitary unit, the people I meet are very ordinary Perhaps they did a crime when they were in their teens, they did drugs, but they've been sitting in prison. They're very thoughtful. They've been educating themselves. And if given a chance, they would do fine out in the general population or out in the community. So the trick is to find the incremental steps that can get them out of solitary and into a more social functioning setting. So if we stay with that, how do we get the administrative or the legislative authorities to implement it. 
Well, actually, they are implementing it. New York, Maine, Illinois, Colorado, all the legislators in those states have made it illegal to put people with mental illness in solitary confinement. So they have learned, they've been educated, that people with mental illness, their condition is exacerbated by isolation. So laws have been passed. Generally, what happens is that intelligent commissioners and uh, administrators and legislators, they understand the damage by explaining how damaging solitary confinement is for human beings. They eventually get the point, and they know that the prisoners they have in solitary are deteriorating. They're becoming more and more disturbed and more and more disruptive, and so solitary is not working. In Mississippi, we eventually closed the Supermax facility, Unit 32, which if it's true that we need solitary in order to discipline a rowdy prison population, we would think that the violence would increase in the system, whereas actually after we closed solitary, this was the result of a lawsuit, the violence rate in the entire Department of Corrections of Mississippi decreased. So that disproves that we needed to handle violence. Well, a lot of administrators agree with that, and they're trying their best to close their solitary units. Colorado has succeeded. Rick Ramish, the director there, has announced in the New York Times in an op-ed that he has gotten rid of solitary confinement in Colorado. And the way to do it is to build programs that are aimed at the particular capacities and needs of prisoners and then put them in the program, a prisoner in a program who's functioning and learning something and has some hope of improving him or herself so that he, can, he or she can get out and succeed in the community, those prisoners will not get into trouble. And that's the basis for ending solitary. What do you think of the concept or the possibility of engaging legislators to go to a prison and see a solitary cell and by obviously certain agreements beforehand that they be put into a solitary cell and left there for an hour or so to see what the situation is like? I think it's an excellent idea, and we've done that in many states. Illinois has done that. They closed their Supermax Solitary Confinement Unit, TAMS, in southern Illinois, and they had legislators do that. And then the legislators came back and talked to the legislature and the newspapers, and that's an excellent strategy. Because, you know, it's all about empathy. We tend to villainize prisoners, the whole idea of lock them up and throw away the key disproportionately racial minorities are in prison. So it's black and brown prisoners. To have the public have some kind of empathy, some kind of concern about their fate would improve a whole lot of the difficulty that we have in the correction system. And having people go in and experience what it's like in solitary and then to proceed with the thought process, well, wait a minute, if this is terrible to be in solitary, why are we putting so many people in this terrible situation? Don't we have any compassion for them? And that's what will result in prison reform. Well, Dr. Terry Coopers, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask some questions about you. Would you share with us a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life and gave you a new introspection into yourself and your world? 
Well, I can do that in relation to the prison work that I do. And the epiphany was when I first went into L.A. County Jail and saw what was going on. This was in the early 70s. I had been the doctor for the Black Panthers Free Clinic in South Central Los Angeles, the Bunchy Carter Clinic, where we treated people in the community for free. That was the purpose of the clinic. But we also treated the members of the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles. COINTELPRO, a national police alliance, and the Los Angeles Police Department attacked the Panther office and shot at uh, Panthers, wounding 13 Panthers. And they went to the jail hospital. I then went to the jail hospital to see them because I was their doctor, and the law provided that if you go to jail, you can have your doctor come see you in the jail. So I went in, and I saw them. I saw the horrible treatment they were getting. They were in shackles. Their IVs weren't running. I reported that to the press. And a few years later, the ACLU sued the uh, Los Angeles County over horrible conditions in the jail, and they asked me to be their expert. I went in and looked throughout the whole jail, and what I saw was more people with more serious mental illness than I'd ever seen anywhere, any hospital I'd been in. And the crowding was just horrible. People were inactive. They were sleeping in the day room. It was just a dreadful scene. I reported that in court. But the thing about going in and seeing that, and it's something different than what we hear about generally, it doesn't make the press that things are so horrible inside correctional facilities. Once you see it, you sort of have to do something about it. So for the rest of my career, I've been testifying as an expert and trying to accomplish prison reform. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Well, I have many um, goals. I'm a musician. Um, I have writing I would like to do, but I will always be doing some kind of prison reform. We have to downsize and eventually get down to minuscule prisons, and therefore we need to provide programs in the community, beginning with education, but certainly public mental health in the community so that people won't end up behind bars. Dostoevsky was absolutely correct that you can gauge a society's worth by going inside its prisons. And the United States fails that test. We have some of the worst prisons and we have the most crowding in the whole world. And finally, Dr. Terry Coopers, can you recommend a book to our listeners? Yes, there is a book. uh, My book I wrote myself. It's a single author book. There is a book called Hell is a Very Small Place edited by Jean Casella, Jim Ridgway, and Sarah Shord, and um, printed by the New Press. And what it is is a collection of essays, some by experts and talking heads like me, but many of them by people who have experienced solitary confinement, ex-prisoners who are now out, or even some are still in, who have been in solitary confinement and write about it very poignantly. Well, Terry Allen Coopers, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. This has been the second in a two-part series on solitary confinement here in the United States. Part one may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. An estimated 100,000 prison inmates are locked in cold, dark, and often wet cells more or less 8 feet by 10 feet in size with little or no human contact. 
In some cases, this goes on for years on end. Our guest was forensic psychiatrist Dr. Terry Allen Coopers, based in Oakland, California. He's the author of Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. The book that Terry Coopers recommends is Hell is a Very Small Place, Voices from Solitary Confinement, edited by Gene Casella, James Ridgway, and Sarah Shored. This program was recorded on February 14, 2018. There are over 700 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're all free to listen, download, share as my gift to you. Your comments, ideas, and suggestions are always appreciated. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal mail address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, California. 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Jason Greenberg is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.